what could we have accomplished if with all of those hours, we were actually building our own crisis response systems and systems that were like responsive to the demographics and the determinants of the people who were calling. What if we were busting our asses to create informal housing networks, if we were supporting tribal sovereignty, like deprofessionalizing healthcare, supporting local food systems, you know, like talk about upstream approaches. This shit is inextricably linked to our mission to support people who use drugs. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Something that never gets said enough is that the drug war is racist. This is not an opinion any more than it is an opinion that the American Civil War was fought over slavery. Both were crafted by racists to serve racist agendas of controlling people based on their skin color. It is why it is more urgent than ever that we dismantle the system of oppression, the so-called war on drugs, which may be better described as a war on people. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. Today on the show, we have Haley Coles from Sonoran Prevention Works, a grassroots harm reduction nonprofit in Phoenix, Arizona, that works against some of the structural issues surrounding communities impacted by drug use in Arizona. The infrastructure of harm reduction in the Grand Canyon State is scarce compared to a lot of others. Syringe access is still illegal, for example. So there's a lot of room for growth. We're going to discuss racial justice in the field of harm reduction and where the movement has fallen short and how things can improve. Full disclosure, I worked with Haley in harm reduction back when I lived in Phoenix. In fact, Haley, I still have your copy of uh, Getting Off Right that I need to return to you. Anyway, Haley has been a big inspiration to me ever since we met in 2016. She's been working to improve the health of people who are marginalized by drug use all the way back till 2006. Before founding Sonoran Prevention Works, she coordinated health literacy and hepatitis C screening programs for people who inject drugs in Tacoma, Washington, provided direct care for homeless women and young adults in Seattle, and taught independent living skills to current and former foster youth in Maricopa County. Haley, welcome to the show. Thanks, Troy. It's nice to be here with you both. Also with us today is Zachary Siegel from Chicago. How are you today? Doing okay. You know, just another day in the, in the, in the pandemic world. I'm, I'm safe in my girlfriend's closet. So... Haley, great to have you on. I've followed your work from a distance for a while. And yeah, I think, you know, this is going to be a super, hopefully productive conversation around a lot of very pressing issues. And I think before we get into, you know, the the meat that we're here to talk about, I want you to kind of set the scene uh, of Arizona for us and, and sort of what harm reduction looks like there and what your work looks like there and what SPW Sonora Prevention Works does. Yeah. So I think one of the most important things to understand about the landscape here in Arizona is that syringe service programs are illegal. It is still a felony to give somebody a syringe if you know or should know that they're going to use it to inject drugs. There are syringe service programs in the state, and the oldest program down in Tucson out of the health department, it's been around for 30 years. You know, there's probably close to a dozen 
programs that operate in various levels of, you know, secrecy or being above ground. But what, what they all have in common is that because the work is illegal, it is nearly impossible to fund it. Almost all of the programs are volunteer run. They all have limits on how many syringes and other materials they can give out. Their ability to collaborate with other organizations is severely limited because, you know, even cool down-ass doctors are worried about malpractice, you know, Um, they're worried about insurance. And then, of course, data. It's not a resource that can be prioritized. So I think that's important to understand as we talk about harm reduction in Arizona is that it's all happening, you know, unsanctioned and pretty unsupported. You know, as far as stats, like, yeah, Arizona's bad. So is the rest of the country. And I've kind of, you know, just gotten a little exhausted of like each year, every six months, trying to figure out where Arizona falls on the scale of overdose deaths of HIV, of hepatitis C, I will say that we had the highest increased rate of fentanyl overdose deaths in the entire country from 2015 to 2016. But ultimately, yeah, it's bad. We are under-resourced in, in, all, in all areas of, of harm reduction and drug user health. And we know that policy influences culture. So where harm reduction is accepted in Arizona it's really viewed as a means to an end, and that end is abstinence. It's more understood now in Arizona, but this is pretty new and pretty recent. So back in 2010, myself and my friend Nathan Leach started um, a syringe service program that would become what is now Shot in the Dark. You know, we had experienced chaotic injection drug use. We had shared syringes. We, we had suffered because there was no harm reduction in our state. And we decided like, okay, we got to do something. But uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio uh, was the sheriff of our county. And he had said he would personally arrest anybody who distributed syringes. So we did it, you know, super underground. We were super freaked out. We had a burner phone. We used different names. We were riding around on our bikes. And at the same time, myself and another friend started what would turn into Sonoran Prevention Works because we did also want to work on the policy and the culture side of things. But we couldn't really do that while while operating an underground syringe exchange program. I love the personal touch of Joe personally wanting to arrest people, put on his sheriff cowboy hat and go round up people slinging syringes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's just so classic Arizona. But, you know, Sonoran Prevention Works now, 10 years later, like we're a statewide organization. We are able to employ people. We work uh, in urban areas, rural, tribal border areas. We do work from the micro to the macro. So we do HIV and hep C testing. We do outreach, peer support. We also do some capacity building for organizations who like want to learn how to effectively engage with people who use drugs and, and who want to employ harm reduction. And then we do policy work. So we worked on the naloxone access laws. And for the past three years, we have been working on syringe service programs legislation, which has yet to pass. 
It's gotten really far, though. And I really think it was going to pass this year, but then COVID shut down the legislature because, you know, apparently legislators don't know how to use Zoom. But yeah, we'll continue doing that and working on expanding our, our policy lens to be able to address more than just specific harm reduction policies. Oh, I will add too, in the last three and a half years, we've been able to distribute 400,000 doses of naloxone. We've had 11,000 overdose reversals reported to us. And this is from like every county in the state. And we've given out a shit ton of fentanyl test strips, but I don't have the number for that. Yeah, that's just like life-saving work. It's amazing. Yeah, we're really lucky to be able to do it. And and that's pretty much it in terms of harm reduction in Arizona, right? You don't really get a lot of support from local government. I remember when we were doing Shot in the Dark out of our car, we were literally across the street from the public health department. And like I, I always thought this should be their job. They should be handing out naloxone and condoms and syringes to people. Yeah, totally. No, the the irony of that is is just so clear. You know, so we're the only like statewide org doing this widespread of harm reduction work, but it's really cool. Like different syringe service programs have popped up all over the state. And, you know, there are some MAT clinics who are really embracing harm reduction. So like I said, there's probably a dozen SSPs that operate, you know, all in in pretty different ways. And hopefully there will be more popping up. What is the drug use scene like in Arizona now? I mean, it seemed like Fentanyl took a while to get to Arizona. You can correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, but and now I'm hearing reports that it's in uh, black tar heroin or BTH, which is, I think, predominantly what you can get in Arizona in terms of heroin. But more and more, I'm hearing that it's being tainted with fentanyl. But also, I don't know what meth use is like there. I, I know nationwide, there's more and more in trend towards meth use and cocaine use. How does Arizona differ, especially being a border state? Yeah. So we worked with the Maricopa County Department of Public Health to do a countywide estimate of the the health and experiences of people who inject drugs. So in that study, the estimates are that 50% of people who inject drugs prefer heroin and 50% prefer meth. So it's it's pretty evenly split. As far as fentanyl, you know, it's it's difficult to mix into black tar heroin. That doesn't mean that it's not mixed into it. It certainly is. But we see, you know, I think just like everywhere else, there's fentanyl in the mess, there's fentanyl in the coke. And a lot of the folks that that we're close with, they use dirty 30s, um, you know, perk 30s, uh, little blue pills, and those are just like exclusively fentanyl. Uh, so like, like the fraudulent pills, like those things, I, I hear that's like just bigger on the West Coast in general. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, for some, it's it's a harm reduction measure. You know, a lot of people prefer to smoke the 30s rather than injecting it or snorting it. And like we've absolutely had a lot of people who we work with say that um, for them, it's harm reduction to switch to that. But, you know, as far as useful data, so that's useful data. But the work we did with the county was was super useful as far as describing people who inject drugs in Maricopa County. But state data, it's... I mean, I got to say it's a joke, like what's publicly available. It's awful. So A, there's this overdose dashboard that's updated every couple of weeks. It's only opioid overdoses. So it does not include overdoses on anything else. And like 
yeah, there's also a meth overdose crisis happening, but none of that is captured. The only demographic data is age and gender. And then all the data, it's just numbers. It's just numbers. It's not rates. So, of course, there's going to be more overdoses in the Phoenix metro area than anywhere else because we've got like 80% of the population. In order for that data to be useful, we need to like, we need age adjusted rates. We need to know in which counties are the rates higher among which groups of people. And I would absolutely argue that that's just attempt to obfuscate data. As far as the SSPs, you know, like I said, underfunded, under-resourced. And so unfortunately, you know, they all have different types and levels of data collection um, from super invasive questions to like none at all. And so there's really no coordination of that data. But so, so it's, it's really hard to make any conclusion about exactly who is utilizing SSPs. Yeah, it, it's pretty wild. It's pretty like wild how bad the, the data situation is in this country, even at like the level of the CDC, like they released 2019 overdose data, preliminary overdose data in July of 2020. <laughs> like we just found out what was going on in 2019. So this lag seems like super kind of, I'm not saying it's useless, but like if you're trying to mount a response to an epidemic or a crisis, like you sort of need to know what's going on now, not what happened last year. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, in, in our state, like if, if we're looking for county specific rates, we got to go back several years for that. That hasn't been published in, in quite a while. Mm. And, you know, without that data, just like what you said, we're ineffective. Not only can we not respond to emerging threats and trends, but like we can't prove what we already know. So a lot of us on the ground, you know, and I've been guilty of this, will say like, well, why are we going to waste our time with collecting data? Like, we don't want to create barriers for people and we already know this shit. And like, yeah, absolutely. But for better or worse, like we need to prove that and data does that. It also helps us understand who we need to be prioritizing, how we need to be prioritizing. It's certainly not the end all be all, but it's a really important place to start and to be able to measure our success. Mm. So shifting gears a little bit here. So Arizona shares a border with Mexico. And I've always wondered like how this shapes the state's politics about drugs and race and immigration. And like, I think in contrast, like I live in Chicago and like, we don't have like a border kind of scapegoat to, to other and demagogue about crime and drugs, but we have, you know, quote unquote gangs and bad neighborhoods. And like when people say the South side or the West side, like they're, you know, these are very thin euphemisms for black people and, and black neighborhoods. And, you know, you, you've already mentioned Arpaio and like, we all know that he is a like racist demagogue on immigration. Like how much does that view affect your just like day-to-day -day work? Yeah. You know, it's something that, that we've come up against for a long time and it's been on our radar for a long time. So in 2016, at the National Harm Reduction Conference, 
myself and Nathan Leach, who, like I said, started Shot in the Dark with me, um, and our friend Aaron Hoekstra from Nomas Muertes gave a presentation on the shared constructs of illegality between people who use drugs and migrants. And it was, you know, specific to our experiences in Arizona. Both are defined by what they do with their bodies. Drugs and immigration-related crimes are the first and third most frequent reason why people get locked up in federal prisons. You know, criminalization of people who use drugs and of people who migrate without papers both fuel the, the private prison industry. And a lot of people are fleeing their countries because of drug war violence and extortion. So it's, it's, there's a lot of parallels here, and it's, it's really obvious for us. Of course, anti-immigrant rhetoric, I think everywhere, but, you know, certainly here, it's coded as anti-drug. So <laughs> uh, every time Arizona is in the, in the national news, it seems to be something pretty negative. Uh, we, it, the state has a really bad reputation for a notoriously aggressive, militarized, racist policing style, largely constructed around enforcing the border. Does passing out syringes or naloxone or providing any services to people who use drugs ever land you in the police's crosshairs. Uh, my guess is that, you know, your average square jawed border jock thinks harm reduction or organizations like Shot in the Dark are undermining their drug enforcement tactics, uh, while we all think they're undermining public health and people's bodily autonomy. So there's conflict there. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, aggressive, militarized, racist policing, like it's is it not like that everywhere? It's not like that in Chicago. Um, I mean, yeah, it's I think Everywhere, everywhere, policing is notoriously aggressive, militarized, racist, and it just looks different in different places. There are these different scapegoats, um, like what Zach said earlier. It looks different. So here, uh, it looks different than it's going to look in Atlanta. It looks different than it's going to look in Chicago. It looks different than it's going to look in, in New York. And I think that in some ways, if we're talking about a national movement, and being able to, to have a national influence, I think focusing in on specific states like this can at times work against that because then we, we get a little siloed and we say, oh, well, Arizona is really unique for this reason. So what's happening in, in Georgia doesn't apply here and we can't use that. Um, and I'll be honest, that's absolutely something that I've said in the past, um, feeling like Arizona is so unique and exceptional. But, you know, I think looking at policing overall um, and the ways that it interferes with harm reduction, no matter where we're at, I think that's really important. As far as law enforcement, you know, directly interfering with harm reduction here, not really. I think we're, we're past that being like a major structural concern. Some law enforcement support certain service programs, most don't. But in general, you know, they, they leave SSPs alone. As far as attitudes around naloxone among law enforcement, it's become pretty mainstream to support. For sure, we've interacted with cops who don't think it's their job or they think it's enabling, but that's not the majority. But, you know, what I think policing institutions and all the systems that work with them fail to care about is how their actions and how policing in general, no matter where you are, perpetuates the conditions that cause overdose and that cause drug-related harms in the first place. You know, I think this is a pretty basic concept for those of us in harm reduction. Like, we get that. The same cop who Narcan somebody and takes them to a treatment center instead of, you know, arresting them 
is going to turn around and arrest them when they're taking a piss in public because they have nowhere else to go, or they're going to get their parole violated if the cop finds a used rig. They're going to over-police and target them. And, you know, this isn't new information, right? But the trauma and the fear that law enforcement perpetuates, it persists so much further than just the individual who's experiencing that policing. So we know it's, it's traumatic as fuck to be arrested. It's traumatic as fuck to be detained, to be incarcerated, to know that like you always have to watch your back. But that trauma extends to family members, to neighbors, to entire communities and racial groups, right? So for example, in Arizona, um, about 10 years ago, uh, we passed SB 1070, which was the law that legalized racial profiling. It encouraged the targeting of undocumented brown people. And after that, the entire Latinx community in Tucson um, reported decreased use of healthcare services, even when those people were born in the U.S., So even if they didn't have anybody in their family who was undocumented, maybe nobody in their family who even had migrated, you know, in any recent generation, they were still not using healthcare services because they were afraid of being targeted. And, you know, healthcare services, that also includes drug treatment, wound care, overdose response. So, so the impacts of policing and of racialized policing are absolutely intertwined with drug use in more ways than I think harm reduction is able to articulate. You know, I think the thing that we get wrong a lot of the time is that we're so focused on mitigating harm for people who use drugs at the hands of police. You know, the harm that people who use drugs experience at the hands of the criminal punishment system, housing systems, uh, inept healthcare providers, that we're unable or unwilling to put effort into actually reimagining those systems, to understanding how those systems themselves perpetuate violence, not just on people who use drugs, not just in these really obvious ways, but on the communities that they exist in. You know, and I'll cop to this. I, not that long ago, had this idea that, you know, if, if syringe service programs were legal, then that would make an impact on people of color and and policing people of color. That if law enforcement wasn't able to use a syringe as a weapon to target and incarcerate somebody, then we were doing, you know, we were doing racial justice work. And I really needed help unpacking that. My deputy director, Bianca Schell, who was going to be on the podcast with us, but like is slammed with internal organizational work right now. And unfortunately, that's indicative that we still don't have our shit in order because so much of this really tough work is falling on Bianca's shoulders and we can't just separate that from her identities. Bianca is a brilliant Black queer woman who really challenged me around this. And, and this idea that, that harm reduction policies in and of themselves were somehow related to racial justice. And she asked me like, okay, do you have data to show that it makes that difference? And no, I don't. Like, it's just this like night, nice, neatly packaged assumption. And really it's bullshit. And I think that it prevents us from doing this meaningful work. You know, so if a cop can't bust somebody because of a used syringe, like there's still a million other ordinances that they can use to target somebody who has a marginalized identity. You know, it's 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 just one one offense out of so many. And so this is why harm reduction like 
has to be examining these structures, has to see these as our problem, just trying to reform them to be like a little less cruel. It's really only going to benefit economically privileged white drug users. And the data tells us that when resources are not abundant, that giving naloxone to law enforcement and other institutions that exert harm on people who use drugs isn't actually very efficient or effective in reducing overdose, Um, especially when those institutions are going to turn around and channel that energy into other strategies that are going to exert those norms of abstinence, white supremacy, patriarchy, nationalism. Yes, everyone should have naloxone. Um, but if we're actually talking about who is going to use that naloxone to make an impact, CDC tells us, our data tells us, the vast majority of those people are going to be people who use drugs. And in the past, like I called this a small win. And I think that in harm reduction, um, you know, there's there's some who have always been hypercritical, but I think that a lot of harm reductionists, especially in conservative areas, have said that we're meeting the systems where they're at, that we're making incremental change. But the question is like, wins for who? Incremental change for who, right? Like law enforcement assisted diversion, drug courts, they're seen as these harm reduction wins, but like they overwhelmingly favor white people. And most harm reduction organizations who have done some work with law enforcement, like they've also put way more effort into providing resources to people who use drugs. Um, And that would include us. But all of those hours spent doing overdose prevention work with law enforcement, you know, trying to convince them that, you know, they should hold on to the Narcan and use it on people who are overdosing rather than like on their dogs or themselves. Like what could we have accomplished if, with all of those hours, we were actually building our own crisis response systems and systems that were like responsive to the demographics and the determinants of the people who were calling. What if we were busting our asses to create informal housing networks, if we were supporting tribal sovereignty, like deprofessionalizing healthcare, supporting local food systems, you know, like talk about upstream approaches. This shit is inextricably linked to our mission to support people who use drugs, you know, and not just because people who use drugs would benefit from these changes or like some of these interventions might help to prevent chaotic substance use in the first place. But ultimately the harms that people who use drugs experience, it's just a different slice of the same pie. And that's a pie that like hates bodily autonomy, especially if those bodies aren't white, they're not cis, if they're not documented a pie that profits off of exploitation and like needing to control humans. It's, it's all the same shit. And I think us stopping at giving out rigs or like just focusing on getting a needle exchange bill passed, I think it's just tone deaf as fuck. And like, we're honestly no better than the people who think that drug education in schools is like going to be the end all be all to the overdose crisis. Right. Or that like conscious capitalism is going to create income equality. So maybe that's like a little more than what you asked for, but it's kind of been this journey for, for us. And, you know, for me as like a white woman who is cisgendered, is economically privileged, who has like had the language to talk about racial equity. And like, I really wasn't doing it in this deep way. Was I like hiring people of color? Yeah, totally. But like, 
am I changing systems and am I weaponizing the language of racial equity and racial justice to just like maintain the status quo? Um, and the answer to that is, is yes. And like, I've had to learn and I've been learning and I'm still learning and fucking up. And like, I've learned all of this from people of color, you know, like this shit's been out there. And I think that the harm reduction movement nationally just hasn't done a good enough job of, of seeing, seeing that we need to do better. Mm, yeah, no, that's a very beautiful and biting critique, I think. I mean, I, I always thought that giving naloxone to cops made no sense because they're not remotely first responders. Like the first responders are people who use drugs, like make sure they have it first, make sure their friend networks have it first. I feel like the 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 naloxone to cop idea maybe came about like i think it was from like the obama administration actually like i think they did that to make like the intervention more palatable like let's team up with cops so you know if cops have naloxone then we'll like normalize it you know i think like that kind of strategy like that's the kind of thing that you're like cutting against here where it's like let's let's stop doing that kind of stuff and you know actually take a much deeper approach and a much I think I think it's just more, much more imaginative. It's like this is the this is the society that we live in and of course like we have to acknowledge reality and meet the society and these systems where they're at, but you're also about reimagining new systems and I think that's yeah, like a super important part of this that doesn't get um a lot of attention. Yeah. Yeah, and and I'll just say real quick, you know, Absolutely. Like, I totally agree that kind of this mainstreaming and like targeting support for Narcan among law enforcement, I think it was it was definitely, you know, a strategy um, nationally. And, you know, my my complaint about the harm reduction community up until, you know, a, a while ago was like, oh, well, it's so East Coast, West Coast centered, you know, like y'all can just go to your city council and like demand a thing and they're scared of you and they give it to you, you know, but like in Arizona, we have to do things differently. So like we have to speak to law enforcement, we have to align with these values. And yeah, I I, I really disagree with myself now. Um, I think that, yeah, it got us some wins, but at what cost, right? And like, who ultimately benefits. I want to kind of talk about Sonoran Prevention Works, Black Lives Matter statement. Uh, the, George Floyd was murdered by the police. There were all these protests. Sonoran Prevention Works put out a statement, which was pretty interesting. Um, you talked about some of your own responsibility as an organization. You kind of like were pretty blunt about it. You said Sonoran Prevention Works has perpetuated the harms of white supremacy, but also talked about how uh, it's hard to separate harm reduction from uh, this, you know, criminal justice system that is white supremacy. Uh, I really liked this one part of the statement, quote, overdose, harm reduction and the war on drugs are not somehow disconnected from white supremacy as nothing in this country is. In fact, we will not see meaningful changes to these public health crises if we're not dismantling the systems that fuel disparate outcomes for black people, indigenous people and people of color. One other thing about this statement is you also, you know, uh, reevaluated some of your commitments. And just like we were talking about, one thing you said is you will no longer provide naloxone or trainings to law enforcement. 
there are many other resources available to police and we are choosing to prioritize ours elsewhere. And so you're not exactly saying like cops shouldn't carry naloxone. You just like learn it yourself. I mean, you can learn it in a YouTube video, right? Like it's not, you don't need to waste your time when you could be using that uh, more effectively. Can you talk a little bit about the reaction you got from this statement and why you felt compelled to publish this? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we knew that putting the statement out there would be a problem. You know, we we didn't think it'd be crickets. And we spent a good amount of time like kind of weighing what the different scenarios could be. What could be the worst that happened? What could be the best that happened? What could be right in the middle? And, you know, as we expected, there was a lot of backlash, a lot of backlash, you know, and, and for us in making the decision to, to put the statement out, we're, we're weighing a lot. Like we're made, we're weighing on one hand, maintaining this position that we have, you know, as like a respected authority on harm reduction, because we play nice with everyone. Um, and we, we, we don't tell them what they don't want to hear, which we know is true. And then on the other hand, like, holding ourselves accountable and being honest about what our values are. So, you know, yeah, we, we put the statement out and almost immediately we started getting emails and, you know, just the intolerance for conflict was honestly like, it was really surprising to me. You know, people wrote us back saying that we were hateful, that they, you know, couldn't believe that we would say things that are so negative and like, what we said is that police violence is a public health problem. Us aligning with police makes people of color concerned about us. And because there are other resources out there for law enforcement, like there's lots of other grants that are out there in Arizona that support law enforcement in obtaining naloxone. And because of the work that we had done for the last few years of helping to normalize it among police, like we just don't need to be putting our effort there anymore. And no, we're not saying that that law enforcement don't need naloxone, like especially in the rural areas, like it or not, like they are responding to a lot of overdoses. So I think everyone should have Narcan, you know, but for us and where we want to be going, it just doesn't make a lot of sense for us anymore, you know, and, and <laughs> so all those people who reached out to us to say we were hateful and they like didn't want to work with us and they didn't want to take our resources anymore, you know, these are groups that we had worked with for years. Um, and they went to our funders. They went to our funders and they complained and they have been exerting some will to try and get us defunded. And, you know, we don't know if that's going to happen or not. Um, we did already lose one contract. But, you know, as, as doors close, others open. We have had funders and community partners and friends of the organization who have really stood up for us and really have been working to bring us more into the fold. You know, there is this ensuing precarity. Like we still don't know what's going to happen. We still don't know if we're going to be able to continue doing, doing the work that we do, but you know, ultimately like this is, this is who we are and this is who we want to be. So yeah, that was that. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like it took a little bit of courage to do that. But, you know, I, I really liked what you were talking about, how shifting your attention to other resources more upstream. Can you talk about specific examples of what SBW is doing in that area? 
So, you know, I feel like this this term upstream public health approach, like so often it's actually weaponized against us in harm reduction. You know, people say like, oh, if you don't want people overdosing, you got to like make sure they don't use drugs in the first place. And you're not actually fixing anything by giving them Narcan. But, you know, I see now that like this concept of, of upstream approaches, like it's not out of touch with harm reduction at all. And especially as we're talking about like effective public health interventions across the board as we're talking about challenging these systems, rebuilding these systems, building new systems, right? Like all of these institutions that I've kind of mentioned previously, you know, everything that impacts social determinants of health, they're going to impact people's risk when they're using drugs. So, you know, some of the things that that we're doing now, we established a $10,000 fund specifically to support therapy for Black people who use drugs. We had initially intended for it to be used both for therapy as well as bail, but we've been, uh, we're working with a amazing organization who said that they'd cover the bail so that we can just direct those funds straight towards mental health resources um, for Black Arizonans who use drugs. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're still figuring out the logistics of it, but you know, this is this is a commitment that we have and we're already starting to to put that money together. We also so we had some some internal racial equity committees uh within the organization that you know, kind of weren't doing what we needed them to do. So we put a pause on them, but we are uh starting them up again. You know, I think that in order for us to do effective racial equity work, outside of our organizations, with our participants, with with external partners, like we have to be applying it internally first. Um, so we've really been building up to be able to do that. And, you know, we also want that work to be informed by the national harm reduction movement, right? Like in Arizona, things can be very specific, but I think that by by focusing on the specifics of Arizona, we kind of have our blinders on uh, to, to all of these systems, to all of the ways that that people who use drugs and people who don't use drugs get oppressed and, and fucked because they aren't doing with, with their bodies what people think they should be doing. So, you know, we're really looking uh, to other harm reduction organizations across the country to start talking about, like, what is this national racial justice analysis that we need to have as harm reduction organizations so that can better inform our work here in Arizona. You know, we're also working closer and putting a lot more effort into our collaborations outside of the behavioral health field. Um, You know, that was an easy one for us, but now, you know, doing more work with like migrant justice organizations and like local food networks, Black Lives Matter, like that's, that's the work we need to be doing. And I think that, you know, harm reduction generally, we haven't made our case to to these other groups, right? Like we haven't done it in a way that makes sense and is relevant. And I think that that's, that's a lot of our work right now is figuring out how we do that. Yeah, I, I want to pick up on something you were just talking about in terms of like, you know, trying to build out what you're doing in Arizona, you know, scaling it up nationally and collaborating nationally. And, and I've, and I feel like, you know, outside of the, of the niche of of harm reduction, like the, 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 the contemporary meta narrative about the quote unquote opioid epidemic, you know, it's really been 
super focused on rural, white, and suburban communities. And, like, I had this funny experience a a while ago. Like, a friend of mine was um, interning at the 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 New York Times's audio department and like they have the the daily podcast and it's listened to by like millions of people and she was asking me if I if I had any any good sources about like the opioid crisis for for an episode and and I sent her to some people in in, in St. Louis and you know in in St. Louis the the context is they're serving a primarily black community in like a post-industrial city that is super starved for resources and the the health disparities in Missouri are quite stark and and so you know they're they're really doing some incredible work and but they didn't want to hear from anyone in St. Louis they wanted Ohio and like it had to be Ohio and like the 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 meta narrative is like this is the epicenter like rural white people and like the Ohio River Valley and and like you know, in in talking about what you were just talking about, like trying to, you know, do a much more systemic change and focus on on racial equity, it it like doesn't comport with this larger narrative about Ohio and West Virginia, and like that's such a sticky narrative, and like you you also like have a lot of you know experience trying to rally like republican legislators to back syringes like 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 you know how to how to sort of message and and how to talk to people who who are different and and don't agree with you like i don't know like i i guess i'm just like trying to figure out how to unstick that narrative like how how do we reframe the conversation about about drug use and and overdoses out of this like white suburban rural context shit like fuck if i know i mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's fair (laughs) trying to figure this one out you know um i don't know how i like i have no idea yeah (laughs) i mean i I do think like and i mean i'm the i am the expert in like you know talking to people whose values are very different from mine um about harm reduction but like I think less important than whether we're talking about conservatives, progressives, whoever, like it's just like different values gives us like different talking points, you know? So whether we're, whoever it is we're appealing to, like A, we're still appealing to power. B, that power is rooted in white supremacy and and, and all these other things, nationalism, patriarchy, you know? So I think part of the question is like, can we do this without appealing to power? You know, my, my answer used to be, well, no, like the SSPs are barely functioning because we're not legal and we need to be legal. And like, that is true. That's true. Like we need these programs to be legal so that funders won't be so scared to give us money, right. To do certain services. But that's just like one small piece of it one small piece of the work and our work isn't done. And yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've been guilty of this. Like I have used my own experience 
as this white privileged person who really didn't experience a lot of external harm as a result of my drug use, you know, I was able to get treatment. I didn't have stigma in my family around MAT. I have had to, to use that to gain sympathy. And it makes me sick to have to do that, you know? And like, I absolutely know what I'm doing and I don't want to do that. And I, I, you know, moving forward, like I am not going to be doing that, but still a little unclear, you know, about, about what kind of story is to be telling. But also the, the question is, who are we telling these stories to and why? And like, do we really need to be appealing to that power? And like, yeah, I don't have, I don't have the answers here. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I do think like storytelling and narrative and, and, and culture is like an important part of that. And like, you know, everyone is on Hulu and Netflix, like five hours a day. Like that's where like my mind goes is like, that's where minds are going to be changed is like on the streaming platforms. <laughs> like, I don't think people are like giving a shit about uh, a 3000 word feature in some magazine as much as they are like just consuming and understanding the world through pop culture and like i this is like off topic and tangential but like i I wish that there was more much more of a cultural context around drugs that weren't uh just like super white and and then in other contexts just like talking about crack cocaine and criminalization like i just wish that there was a better culture and from there, like, I feel like a much more, I don't know, productive narrative can spring, but probably, I don't know. We need a TV show, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, shit, only if the people on the TV show look like the people who are watching it, you know, and, and it's the same thing with a 3000 word feature in the middle of a magazine, you know, like it'll gain sympathy with the people who are reading if, if the stories remind them of themselves you know? And so I think just this like exceptionalism around how, you know, the way that we talk about drug use and the people who use them, like it needs to somehow be really different from how we talk about people who immigrate without papers, you know, in the same way we, we talk about people's right to like do what they want with their bodies. Um, So I think, again, like we suffer from this exceptionalism and we're playing right into we're playing right into some bullshit if we're trying to figure out how to like uniquely gain sympathy for people who use drugs with at the same time. We're not like fighting for the freedom for everyone to have the autonomy to do what they want with their bodies. Yeah, like I've always thought like the best drug movie would have to be very boring. Like if you want to like do like a heroin movie, it's like. Someone who is like on the couch watching like five movies a day, like that is heroin addiction (laughs) and like doing nothing. Like that's what I think like a real depiction of this stuff would have to actually be is just like boring. But that's my take. (laughs) You know, uh, I don't pretend to have any of the answers about this stuff either, but I I, I would assume it kind of starts with having a conversation uh, you know, bringing up these topics. And I don't know that a lot of organizations in harm reduction are really taking the time to self-examine in this way. Because it's hard to think about, oh, this organization you built up, what are the ways it's perpetuating white supremacy and racism and, you know, just kind of propping up the criminal justice system instead of really challenging it. But, you know, 
I wonder if people listening to this would push back and be like, are you asking too much? You know, these organizations, we've already talked about how underfunded they are. They're life-saving programs to give people clean syringes or naloxone. It's, it's, it's health care, you know. Um, but are we asking too much of these organizations to suddenly also have to focus on systemic racism? Yeah, you know, some people would probably say that. And, you know, for real, for real, like doing racial equity work, doing racial justice work in a harm reduction organization, like we haven't been able to prioritize it. You know, like on one hand, we're always responding to the next crisis, whether it's like our participants getting arrested, our staff overdosing, financial instability, political attacks. And that's for us, that was that was our excuse for a really long time, because this work also needs to be funded. You know, like don't start trying to do racial equity work out in the world without having someone who knows what the fuck they're doing, like leading you through it on the inside, you know, and And I think, too, just this like exceptionalist complex that we're so different from other organizations that like, well, what works in other in other places is just not going to work for us. Um, And in some ways, that's true. But, you know, we're we're really missing this harm reduction and racial justice analysis across the country. We we haven't, uh, I think, really made the case for why it's important and you know, black and brown harm reductionists sure as hell have, you know, absolutely they have. Has it been instituted widespread? No, it hasn't been. And, you know, I would imagine that harm reduction orgs who say, well, you know, we're, we're, we're just doing what we can. We're scraping by, like, that's not something that we can take on right now. Like on one hand, I get it. Shit's hard. What's your plan though? And on the other hand, like, you're probably white, <laughs> you know, you're probably white. And this isn't like an imminent threat to you like it is to people of color, um, like it is to people who aren't documented. So, you know, I think that, yes, harm reduction organizations, we need to be doing this internal challenging of white supremacy. And that's like in all of our processes. So not just who we hire and like what color their skin is, um, but like the people that we hire are Are they open to challenging themselves and the people around them? You know, are they curious? And especially in Arizona, like, you know, there's not a big analysis. Um, There's not a super strong analysis that's like widespread. So like, no, we, we aren't trying to just hire super woke social justice warriors. And like, in a lot of ways, those people also have their blinders on, you know, but we have to be we have to be bringing people into our teams who are curious, you know, and who are willing to to take a look at how they benefit from white supremacy, no matter what what tone they are, you know. Troy, your question really reminds me of what uh, Ricky Bluthenthal was talking about a few episodes back, where he, he was basically laying out like you can have the best harm reduction program in the world that's you know, ran by people who use drugs and is well-funded and has a consumption site and is connected to to services. And you can have the, like the, the Cadillac, you know, souped up version of harm reduction. But if the, you know, the larger society in which that is working does not fund 
healthcare and has a brutal criminal justice system and isn't taking care of people's basic needs, then like that program is going to be, you know, playing defense. Like it, it can't like flourish. It, it can't do what it's meant and supposed to do in this system, you know? And I feel like that's, I feel like like every harm reduction group is like, you know, on their back foot at all times trying to do whatever they can with what they have to reduce harm. And that could be, yeah, like these minor little incremental things. And, you know, that is just like the best they can do with what they have given the world we live in. And it's especially the world that we live in right now, it sounds and looks bleak as fuck. Like it's going to get even worse. And it's like, you know, a harm reduction group cannot fix that. They can only respond. And at some point, if the society we live in doesn't get better, it's like this is going to be, you know, insurmountable. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll kind of end with saying like, yeah, as harm reduction organizations, we are constantly in this position of, cleaning up after failed policies, you know, always, whether it's drug policies, whether it's criminal punishment, whether it's housing, immigration. And, you know, I think that it really can be our role to fix those policies, you know, to not just be responding to them, but to to being able to prevent the fallout in the first place. Can we do it on our own? Hell no. You know, uh, and all the harm reduction organizations in the country combined won't be able to do it. And that's where solidarity and intersectionality like really means something here. What can we reimagine? You know, and I'm not so sure I'd say we're 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 there yet. Like we're definitely not there yet. You know, like Sonoran Prevention Works, we're still figuring shit out. We're still like at the beginning of this very long journey. But I do hope that, you know, we can keep doing better and that nationally the harm reduction movement, like we can take the blinders off and we can, we can understand that it is our role to change the systems rather than just respond to them. Yeah. And I appreciate you for being so transparent about this whole process because it is an ongoing thing. You, you just kind of have to learn as you go, I guess. That was pretty much it from me. Is there anything else you want to talk about on the show? Anything you want people listening to know about? So our Twitter handle or name or whatever you call it, it's at SPW underscore AZ. You know, still new to the Twitter game, trying to figure it out. But, um, you know, you can find us there and on all the other social media platforms. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I think this is a really great uh, topic that, you know, it's going to convict some people. I hope that in a, in a positive way that, you know, people don't just feel guilty or demoralized, but realize there is work for all of us to do on really challenging these systems of oppression in our society. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say they are systems of oppression. They are designed to hurt people and they are designed to hurt people of a certain color more. Uh, so... You know, I think, I, I, like I said before, I think this really does start with having a conversation and then starting to examine some of the ways that we contribute to white supremacy. Thank you so much, Haley. We'll say goodbye now. Bye, guys. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast. And for those of you chasing that ecstasy crash feeling, there's also a Facebook page. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Marath, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. Our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music is by Body Surfer. And I'm your co-producer, Garrett. If you like this show and support what we do here, consider donating to us on Patreon. Especially right now, your contributions make this show possible. Give us a follow wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, you name it. And be sure to tell a few friends. I hope everyone's staying safe out there. Have a nice night.